0: a little warm in here. Trying to get that heater to work is a major factor in the uh, angelic conflict. It got so hot in here Sunday morning, I don't know what I said the last ten minutes. I don't think anybody else does either. I'm going to have to (laughs) redo that. I know I made at least three mistakes in the Greek because I was just dying up here. And um, I'm ready to take a 12-gauge to the heater unit. But What are you grinning for? You're going to be going to a church that has a modern facility But <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, you can't have everything. <laughs> <laughs> they have power. You can plug in a tape recorder. It's in in 2nd Hezekiah. This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, His compassions fail not, great is thy faithfulness. Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because He trusteth in thee. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting peace. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We always have a few moments of silent prayer. In light of the uh, current political situation and turmoil, maybe we need to expand that a little bit. <laughs> Knowing that uh, some, some of you are probably beating your heads against the wall and wanting to hurl objects through your television set. It is always good to know that, we, uh, that the, Jesus Christ controls history and that for whatever reason, we are watching the deterioration, disintegration of our constitution and judicial system before our very eyes. It's a wonderful lesson in, in, uh, in civics and, the, uh, and what happens when arrogance controls a nation and converts objective thought into subjective thought so that the rule of law is thrown out in favor of uh, subjective feeling and impressions. We are seeing, if you recall our study we did some time ago on postmodernism, we are seeing the outworking of postmodern thinking in all realms of society. The ultimate core in postmodernism is that there are no absolutes. And so meaning is determined by the individual based on his perception. And... uh, Whether that involves dimples or the uh, existence of God, it it still throws us into a sea of uh, subjectivity and instability, and it will be fascinating to see how all of this works itself out. So we'll start off with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we can focus on the things that we need to and learning doctrine, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded that you control history and that history is the outworking of your plan. And when we see things of this nature, this level of instability, not only what's going on in our own country, but some of the things that have happened in Eastern Europe and in the Middle East in just the last year, and the uh, movement of key pieces on the chessboard of, na- of international affairs, we know that uh, you are working things out and that sooner or later this will culminate in the rapture and the beginning of that horrible seven year period known as the tribulation. Father we're thankful that we will not go through that but we pray that we would be diligent in our witness to those around us and giving them the gospel so that either before or subsequent to that event they will know the truth and put their faith and trust in Christ alone. Now Father as we continue our study of uh, your plan and dispensations and covenants. We pray that you'd help us to understand these things, see how important it is to understanding our own spiritual life and uh, your plan and future for mankind and what you are doing in human history. And we pray that we would uh, uh, rise to the challenge to grow to spiritual maturity because that is the most important thing that we can do. And that is what, uh, where the arena in which we have our greatest impact, both in time and in eternity. So now we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our study of God's plan for the ages, dispensations and covenants. And we are now down to the, our eleventh hour here, uh, studying the second part of the Mosaic covenant and the dispensation of law. What I am doing as we go through this is to uh, uh, break down each dispensation, starting with what the revelation that God gives that shifts his administration. We saw in our study the word dispensation, that it is an excellent word. It's a translation of the Greek word oikonomos. Oikonomos has to do with a steward or an administrator, and the noun oikonomia has to do with an administration. And so a dispensation is the administration or how God administers uh, human history. And as such, it certainly entails a certain time frame, and that brings in the concept of the word age. And so each dispensation goes from a period of revelation where God changes the way in which he administers history during that time. And then each of these ages includes a a, a responsibility, test, a failure, and judgment. Also, there's an emphasis on the grace of God. And it relates to the outworking of the angelic conflict. So, in each of these ages, we're looking at each of these facets and breaking them down. And we began last week by looking at the Mosaic covenant. Now, a covenant is a contract between God, who is viewed as party of the first part, and man, who is party of the second part. There are three main Gentile covenants. The first is I think I'm going to change the term here. I like the term creation covenant a little better than Edenic covenant, although that has become the traditionally accepted uh, nomenclature. The Edenic covenant is the creation covenant God made with Adam at his creation in Genesis 1, through 28. Although it is not called a covenant in Genesis, it is in Hosea 9, 6 where it states that um, Adam broke the covenant in the garden. This ended with the fall, which time God had to refine or revise the contract based on man's uh, status as as a sinner, and that's covered in Genesis chapter 3, 14 through 19. That ended with the flood, man's failure during that dispensation known as human conscience, ended with the flood and the destruction of every human being on the planet except for Noah, his wife, their three kids, and their wives. Eight human beings survived. God revised the covenant again, and he made it with Noah as a representative of the entire human race. This Noahic covenant is still in effect today and continues in effect, or certain of its provisions continue in effect until the Lord comes back and others aren't phased out until the end of the millennium but it is the, uh, uh, the Noahic Covenant is the basis by which God judges and evaluates all Gentile nations for the remainder of human history. Then we saw that there are four Jewish covenants, uh, or five Jewish covenants. Four of them are unconditional. The first is the Abrahamic Covenant, which we have studied in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, and other passages. The key elements are land, seed, and blessing. Each of these components... That there would be a specific piece of real estate God would give to Adam, I mean to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob for all of eternity. That that was located between certain boundaries that are specified in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And that this promise was confirmed to Isaac, to Jacob. And then each of these uh, elements the land, the seed, referring to both the people and the Lord Jesus Christ, and then blessing through Abraham to all nations would be developed in more detail in three additional covenants. The real estate covenant in Deuteronomy 30, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 expands the seed provision, and the new covenant expands the blessing provision in Jeremiah chapter 31. These are all unconditional or permanent covenants, and they continue in existence And will ultimately be fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. And they are fulfilled for Israel during the millennial kingdom. Then God established a conditional or temporary covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. And this is the Mosaic covenant. And it is covered uh, specifically in Exodus chapter 20 through 40. But in a broad sense it covers Exodus 20 verse 1 through Deuteronomy 28:58. Now, as we have approached this, here's the outline for looking at the Mosaic Covenant. We talked about the basic scripture, which I just quoted Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy 28. The persons for the Mosaic Covenant, God party the first part, Moses party the second part as the representative of Israel. We went through the provisions of the Uh, covenant a couple of weeks ago and the token was the sabbath and then last time we just began the fourth part or the fifth part which is the purposes for the uh, mosaic covenant the purposes for the mosaic covenant i stated last time that we have to remember that the mosaic covenant is one integral document that means that it must be taken as a whole There are three sections to it. The first section is what we normally refer to as the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. That's given in Exodus chapter 20. That is like the preamble to our Constitution. That sets the tone and establishes the basis for all of the other mandates in the Mosaic Code. Then there is a second part, which is the Civil Code. And the third part is the ceremonial part. Now, the civil code was for believer and unbeliever alike in Israel, as was the Ten Commandments. For the whole nation, which included both believer and unbeliever, it was not a way of salvation, and it was not the basis for their spiritual life. The ceremonial law was for the believer. And as the ceremonial law focused on sacrifices and it focused on the a temple service and all of the furniture in the tabernacle and eventually which would be in the temple. All of that was visual aids designed to teach certain principles about um, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, his person, his work, as well as man's need for redemption and the sinfulness of sin and how sin had permeated every aspect of human life. So that's the, we must keep that in mind because there are so many people who get the idea that the Christian life is somehow based on either the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic Law. And what they'll do is they'll go back and they'll say, well, the ceremonial part of the law was fulfilled in Christ, but the rest wasn't, and so we're still obligated to keep that. And that's crazy because that's uh, uh, going in, taking your razor blade, and slicing through a document that is integral it is it has integrity it, all parts are related to one another you can't just go in and tear it in half and say well that part doesn't apply anymore and this part does or go in and take out certain verses and say this applies and that doesn't so and that's pretty much what people want to do and that fits with postmodern interpretation although the attempts to do that go far far much further back in uh, in the history of ideas now what we see As I have said before, there we go. As I have said before, in theology, or in the development of Christianity there are two basic approaches to interpreting scripture. The first is called replacement theology or I'll call it that. I only know of a couple of people who are making this point today, but it's uh, I think it's just becoming coming into focus for a lot of people today. So this is sort of cutting edge theological development for you. Is to call it covenant it's called it replacement theology normally what you've heard Is the juxtaposition of dispensationalism with covenant theology. But covenant theology is just one type of theological system that is part of replacement theology. In replacement theology, Israel replaces, or or the church replaces Israel in God's program because Israel rejected Christ as Messiah so that the church becomes the heir of all of God's Old Testament promises and prophecies to Israel. Now, what happens there, and and, well, let me just give you some examples. Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, all branches of the Reformed, uh, uh, what's called Reformed theology, that's Calvinism, Presbyterianism, Congregational Government, it would affect the old Anglican uh, view from the... uh, before modernism and liberalism affected it, as well as uh, many Reformed Baptist views are also into replacement theology. Now, if Israel is taken out of God's plan and replaced with the church, then the church becomes the heir of all of the covenants. So, we have seen that in Romans 9, Paul says that the Israel to, to Israel, to whom belong the promises and the covenants. So there is no ship. But covenant theology and all the other forms of replacement theology look at the church as being an heir to Israel. Now, why, that's, why is that important? The reason that's important is because then, in their view, the Mosaic law then applies directly... To the modern church. And that is a major fallacy based on an on a interpretive flaw. Then, in contrast to that, there is dispensational theology which holds to a consistent literal interpretation, so that if God literally made certain promises to Israel in the Old Testament and he fulfilled them in part in the Old Testament literally then he will eventually in the future bring them to completion literally and that the church is like a parenthesis in God's plan and the church is a separate and distinct people of God with separate and distinct provisions and separate and a separate and distinct role Therefore, the spiritual life of the church age is unique, and it is uniquely based upon the Holy Spirit, the indwelling and filling of God the Holy Spirit. This is going to revolutionize our understanding of the spiritual life so that if you are a dispensationalist, your understanding of the spiritual life is radically different from everybody else. And I'm telling you, very few theologians, there are even some... um, dispensationalists who don't really understand that and don't work out the implications of that in terms of their teaching but that is a vital point and undergirds a lot of what we are studying and why we are studying this so we look at the mosaic covenant now in terms of these aspects and we come to this fifth Uh, section which is the purposes and when we look at the purposes we're going to do so in three areas the purposes in relation to israel the purposes in relation to the gentiles and third the purposes in relation to sin so first of all in relation to israel uh, god has purpose given them the law in order to keep them a distinct people turn with me to leviticus chapter 11 Leviticus chapter 11. For the most part, Leviticus outlines the offerings and uh, duties of the, of the priesthood and of the people in terms of sacrifices and offerings. Leviticus chapter Eleven look down at verse uh, forty two Just as part of this overall um, overall portion of the law, I want you to look back at just let's just hit on a couple of things. The issue here is between that which is unclean and and clean. Back in verse 24, it's talking about various types of animals, winged insects and other things. And verse 24 says, Moreover, you will be made unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses becomes unclean until evening. And whoever picks up any of their carcasses shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And then in verse 26, Concerning all the animals which divide the hoof but do not make a split hoof, that would be like a... uh, well, I'm not sure, uh, divide the hoof, but do not make a split hoof, Or to which do not chew the cud. For example, a horse doesn't chew the cud, but it has a single hoof. Uh, pigs have a split hoof, but don't chew the cu- cud. They are unclean to you. Whoever touches them becomes unclean. Also, whatever walks on its paws, among all the creatures that walk on all fours, are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until evening. And when it picks up the carcasses, it shall wash its clothes and be unclean until evening. They are unclean to you. And these are to you the unclean among the swarming things. What word do you keep hearing in all of that? Unclean. The reason they are unclean is not because it has morally defiled them or there is some kind of moral uh, guilt attached with being involved, touching, eating one of these animals. It is that all of these animals at one point or another are involved with, with either be, they're carnivorous, they're eating dead things, they're scavengers, and so all death is the result of the fall. And because the overriding principle in the law is that if you touch something dead, it makes you unclean because it has associated you with sin and the the penalty of sin. And being unclean merely means that you're ceremonially unfit. That means you can't go into the temple or into the tabernacle until the uh, prescribed period of time is over with and then you have to bring a sacrifice. And the reason this is pointed out is to emphasize how sin uh, affects our relationship with God. And so if you go through the law, you see that over and over again that this is emphasized that one thing after another can keep people from coming in, coming into the presence of God and being... Uh, and being ceremonially clean, and so the point all through this section is that Israel is going to be distinct and Israel is going to be separate from anyone else because of the way they they live their lives and the law is going to keep them keep them uh, separate. The key principle is given in verse three of chapter eighteen. And there we read, you shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. That means you're not going to live according to their standards. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. And so all of these statutes are designed to keep Israel distinct and separate from the nations surrounding them. So that is the first purpose for the law in relation to Israel. And the second is to provide a rule of life for the Old Testament believer. Not a rule of life in terms of providing salvation or even sanctification, but in order to provide stability for the nation. And what that tells us is that ultimately, stability in a nation is based upon following the rule of law. And every time you see Israel begin to reject the law and reject God, first of all, as we're seeing in our study in Judges, they reject God. Once you reject God, you ha- we have rejected any basis for absolutes. We can chart it something like this, using various ideas from philosophy In everyday life, there are all sorts of details, all kinds of particulars. What gives meaning to those particulars are what is called universals. It is up in this upper level, draw a line separating universals from particulars. It is in this top area of universals where ultimate absolutes reside. This is where the arena of God's revelation exists. But if man says that every human being is just locked in his own little box down here so that all he can really know is his own perception of things, he can't know things as they are, He can only know things as he perceives them. Then truth, there no longer is an absolute truth that defines and informs every particular. All you're left with is relative perception. You see what I'm saying here. Once you're left with nothing but the particulars, each individual. Okay, look at each box as if it's an individual person. And that, that each individual then becomes unable to know absolutes because he has built a wall in his thinking, rejecting God and rejecting the knowledge of absolutes, and saying, and basically, starting from his own experience, he says, Well, obviously God can't speak to man. God can't communicate to man, it's it's impossible. See, he's assuming his conclusion. It's a circular argument where the unbeliever often assumes his conclusion in order to prove it. And the, uh, con- but he doesn't tell you that. They're not honest about it. And they're assuming that God can't do certain things, and they're because they have front-loaded their, priest, their, their, their uh, definition of God as being impossible to speak, then when you say, see, there's the Bible where God has spoken, they say well, that can't be because God can't speak to man. It's impossible. And this has its roots in the philosophy of a man named Immanuel Kant, from the late 1700s, early 1800s, and the result of that is that it, in the realm of ideas and ideological thinking and philosophy, it destroyed the possibility of knowing truth. All you can know is perceptions. And so you, all you have left is relative perceptions, and each individual, each individual then becomes his own authority. Well, what we're seeing here, it really isn't new. It may have new ideological trappings and terminology, but it's the same thing you see happening in in Judges. And we're seeing that in our Sunday morning study of Judges, that everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Now, this is a much more sophisticated uh, and analysis and rationalization to destroy the existence of God. But what mo- all most people do is they just say, well, I don't think God really has anything to say about my life, so I'll just make my own decisions. And so based on relativism, you make yourself your own authority. But the big problem there is how much do you really know? None of us knows that much. When you think about all the things that are knowable... We know very little. We just know, any of us just know something, just a small, small, microscopic uh, percentage of all that can be known. So we set ourselves up as our own authority, thinking we know everything. Of course, the Bible says that that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. It is a self-destructive procedure once you slip into this kind of a position. And this is exactly what happened to Israel in the Old Testament over and over again. We just see these cycles where they, they return to God and then they go into failure and idolatry because once they reject God, then they reject that the idea that there are absolutes. When everything then becomes relative, you, you become your own authority and the end result is always instability. And if you want to guarantee misery and self-destruction in your life, then the one thing you need to do is to get away from God and start thinking that you know how to solve all the problems in your life and you know more than God does. And that happens again and again and again, and it just creates in Israel this self-destructive cycle. Well, it really doesn't go quite like that. It's more downhill all the time, all the way through the period of the judges. Every now and then... They have a true national revival where there's a large number of people who return to the Lord, like at the time of Josiah when they rediscovered the law after it had truly been lost in the temple in storage for a couple of generations. Then, once again, they entered into their last decline. That happened in about the uh, uh, 7th century B.C., about the time of Daniel. Now, the interesting thing is that part of the reason that we have been Uh, that I have been going through this study of covenants and dispensations, is as a preparatory for us in our study of Daniel. And we'll be starting Daniel in five or six weeks when we conclude our study of covenants and dispensations. And it's interesting, I sort of charted this out a year and a half ago, and it's interesting to see how the Lord sort of pulls things together because we've been studying Judges, which is the story of how a nation becomes paganized. As a nation rejects God, and we see it again and again in Judges, they forget the Lord and they serve the Baals. And as they forget God and rewrite history and take God out of the picture, they start serving false gods and false religions, even if it's self-worship. And then the result of that is they go into a moral relativism. And then as a result of that, they've become enslaved to the sin nature. And whenever you're operating in carnality and you're a slave to the sin nature and you're a slave in your soul, it won't be long until you... enslave yourselves to various forms of government. And we see that exemplified in the political scenario today, that one of the major issues is that everybody wants to vote on the basis of who a, who, and what a political figure is and what they promised us. What can they do for me? If you ask that question, you're starting off on the wrong foot. That is not the issue in voting. If you start voting <coughs> from that kind of self-centered self-absorbed position you will guarantee the failure of this nation and people do it time and time again and it's the mentality of a slave because once you're a slave all you're concerned about is what the uh, boss down in the big house is going to do for you and how he's going to make life more comfortable and how he's going to provide your security. And so once you get to the point of thinking like that, then you think that the government is going to provide security for you now and security for you in old age. And let me tell you, God is the only source of security in this life and in the next. And once you start attributing divine attributes to government, which is what this nation is doing, then you are on the slippery slope to national destruction. You have forgotten freedom. You no longer have capacity for freedom. And if freedom slaps you in the face, you're going to run from it because it means personal responsibility. And that means that when you are 75 years old and you make a bad decision and lose everything, that you might have to go live under a bridge. Oh, how horrible. But that's personal responsibility. That's what, that's what the first divine institution is all about. <coughs> now, God did provide for a level of taking care of the uh, indigent, widows, and orphans in the Mosaic law, but it is certainly not anything like the uh, welfare system that we have uh, provided in our country so that there's a safety net there so that nobody will ever fail and hurt themselves. Well, to the degree that you prevent people from failing and realizing the negative consequences of their decisions, To that same degree, you will limit their ability to succeed. When you limit freedom, you will limit freedom to fail to the same degree you limit freedom to succeed, and it works the other way. When you limit the freedom to succeed, it will always have a correlation to the results of freedom, I mean, the results of failure. So that if you try to provide a safety net to protect people from the negative consequences of their own decisions, then you will also limit the degree to which people can succeed and realize the benefits of their own hard work and their own hard efforts. Most of you don't realize it, but if you took the amount of money that you made and you factored in all of the taxes and all of the um, fees that you have to pay to the government, you would discover that you worked five or six months out of every year uh, that 100% of your income, of that income, went to the government. And that means for five or six months out of the year, you and I are slaves to the government. That's what slavery is. It's working without getting pay, without benefit of any kind of of uh, a payment. Now, 100 years ago, when they didn't have an income tax, they still had property taxes and other forms of taxation because taxation is legitimate. People only turned over about 10% of their income, to the government of any type in terms of taxes. Imagine how much more freedom we would have if we had that much more money. See, there is a correlation between how much you reap from your hard work and freedom. That's what the founding fathers were so upset about and why they made such an issue out of uh, the, the lack of representation in England when they were raising taxes on everybody. Because when the taxes went up, and the money was taken away from their pockets, it limited their freedom. Money does one thing. it doesn't make you happy, but it does give you options. And if you don't have money, you don't have options. And another word for not having options is not having freedom. Freedom is a state where you have a large amount of options that you can get in, and that you can avail yourself of. So what happened over and again in Israel, Is they continuously got into sin, because they became soul slaves, they lost freedom, they adopted the mentality of a slave, and before long they were under the heel of some foreign power. So they failed to ever fully exploit the Mosaic Law for their own blessing. So the Mosaic Law in relation to Israel kept them distinct and was to provide a rule of life for their freedom, for their happiness, and for their blessing. But they failed. In relation to the Gentiles then, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, and we'll look at verses 11 through 15. Ephesians two, eleven to 15. Verse 11. This is a crucial chapter and we'll come back to it a couple of times in relation to the law. Therefore, Remember that formerly you, that is, you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. That would be referring to Jews. And then there's an appositional clause there, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. It's just an overt sign Paul is saying. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time. Now, that that time is referring back to pre-cross Mosaic law time. Remember that you were, at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. You see, from this we learn that one purpose of the law was to keep the Gentiles separate from the blessings in Israel. It served as a partition, a dividing wall. That God's blessing, His superabundant blessings, were restricted to one particular people, and that it was through them that God was working. So, if you were a Gentile, the only way to avail yourselves of the higher level of blessings of God was to become a proselyte, be circumcised, and, and become a Jew to enter into uh, the Mosaic law obedience, not later Judaism, which was a um, which was a perversion and legalistic perversion of the Mosaic law. So, the point that Paul is making in verse 12, and this is the function of the law in relation to Gentiles in the Old Testament, is it kept them, it was a dividing wall to keep them from the blessing that God promised to Israel in order to set Israel apart. Verse 13, But now in Christ, notice the contrast, but is Allah in the Greek, strong contrast between the Old Testament period of separation and the present status of the believer who is in Jesus Christ. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Brought near to what? Brought near to the promises, the blessing. Why? Well, we're going to see this when we get to the study of the new covenant, and that is that in the Old Old Testament, you have the Abrahamic covenant promised three things. Land, seed, and blessing. And it was going to be through Abraham, through the Jews, that blessing would go to all nations. And this is fulfilled at the cross when, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all placed in Christ. And according to Galatians chapter 3, there is... Uh, "...no Jew or Gentile, no bond or slave, no male or female, for we are all one in Christ." That means there are no distinctions for the believer in approaching the presence of God. In the Mosaic Law, there were distinctions. Women could not go into the Holy of Holies. Slaves could not go into the Holy of Holies. Gentiles could not go into the holy place at all. They were restrictions. Now, in the church age, all have equal access... To God, Every single believer has the same access, the same opportunity to live the spiritual life. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, that is Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Blood of Christ being an idiom for the death of Christ, the substitutionary spiritual death of Christ on the cross. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. See, now in the church age, Jew there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That's not going to be true in the tribulation. It's not going to be true in the millennium. But that's what makes the church age unique. There is no Jew or Gentile in the body of Christ. It's not an issue. Who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What was the dividing wall? The law. He broke it down. Why? As we're going to see, it says in Romans, Christ is the end of the law. It was the law that separated Jew from Gentile, and Christ broke down the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh, that is, when he bore the penalty of our sins on the cross, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So from this we see that the law served as a wall of partition, a dividing wall, a barrier to keep the Gentiles away from the covenants and to keep them from participating in the spiritual privileges of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, we come to the third arena of the relationship of uh, of the law, and that is the law in relation to sin. And let's turn to Romans chapter 7. Now, we just completed a, a... fairly detailed study of Romans chapter 7 so we don't need to spend time exegeting our way through here but we will uh, just hit the high points the law in relation to sin in Romans chapter 7 from verse 7 down through 8-4 verse 7 Paul says a rhetorical question what shall we say then is the law sin may it never be on the contrary I would not have come to know sin except through the law what does that tell you says that one purpose of the law is to define sin. Paul says, I wouldn't have known that that covetousness was a sin if the law had not said it was a sin. That's the second part of the verse. He says in verse 8, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. In other words, it caused us to sin more. When somebody comes along and tells you don't do something, you can't do that, so often what we want to do is just what we're told not to do. It causes us somehow, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do it, and I'm going to make it work. Nobody else can, but I'm smarter than anybody else, and I have more ability, and I'm better than anybody else, so I'm going to make it work, and everybody else might get in trouble doing it, but not me. So the law, the prohibitions of the law generated a... um, Uh, related desire in the sin nature to just go ahead and disobey. Furthermore, down in verse um, 9, it says, And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, uh, alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous is good. Then verse 13 we read, Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. The self-destruction of sin in one's own life demonstrates that the commandment is good. And as you go on down through the rest of this chapter and down into chapter 8, the other point that is made here is to demonstrate that we can do nothing to please God. If you look down about verse um, verse 8 of chapter 8, it says, "...and those who are in the flesh living according to the law cannot please God." So there are four things that this section t- says about the law in relation to sin. First of all, it defines sin. Secondly, it causes us to sin more. Third, it demonstrates that we can do nothing to please God. Once you come to understand the the dimensions of the Mosaic Law, again and again and again, it, it would dem- if you were living the law, trying to apply perfectly, and I don't think Israel ever did, it would show that almost every waking moment you were doing something, thinking something, or, or touching something that made you ceremonially unclean. And the point was to demonstrate man's inability to save himself and his his desperate need for God, that man can do nothing on his own to please God. And then the fourth reason uh, for the law in relation to sin was to lead us to Christ. That because we can do nothing, uh, God must provide the the solution. This is clearly seen in Romans 7 down to eight one. Now... The fifth point that we're going to look at is is the status of the law. Romans 10.4 states, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the clear teaching of Scripture is that the Mosaic law is no longer in effect today for the believer. No one, Jew or Gentile, is obligated to keep the Mosaic Law. Now, if we look at the passage, For Christ is the end of the law, the word translated end, the Greek word that is translated end, is a word that is uh, related to some that are very familiar to us, or should be by now, and that is the Greek word telos. T-E-L-O-S. And that is related to the adjective telios the verb teliao, which means to bring something to completion, to bring it to maturity. And I like the, the idea of bringing it to completion. And so the idea here in Romans 10 is that Christ has brought to completion the law for righteousness to everyone who believes because in Jesus Christ, He is... Absolute, perfect righteousness. ...in his life, which qualified him to go to the cross as impeccable. One of the uh, interesting things that questions that has come across uh, to me in recent weeks is this question of what value did uh, Christ's uh, sufferings, his physical sufferings on the earth prior to the cross, have for salvation. And I get a little uh, newspaper from, a, uh, if I told you who, everybody would ooh and ah, uh, some guy down in Virginia, let's say. And... Uh, There's a, and I'm not going to mention any names because these are some people that I am professionally associated with on the pre-trib rapture study group, and they ought to know better as some of the people at the forefront of dispensationalism today. But out of concern for the gospel, a number of well-known names and theologians got together, as they do every now and then, and they put together what they thought was a well-crafted 19-point document on the gospel. Everybody's concerned the gospel is being watered down today and not being presented clearly. Well, in about point eight of this document, they said that they believed, and it was just poorly worded, they believed that all of Christ's life related to salvation. They didn't make it clear that the physical life of Christ and his sufferings qualified him to go to the cross. They did not make it clear And five or six of the key movers on this this committee are all at the forefront of defending dispensationalism today. And it just shows the lack of, of good. I mean, these are men that should know better, have PhDs in theology, some of them. And in covenant theology, there is the idea that when Adam was created, he was neither minus R nor plus R. He was... Neutral. Let's call it N-R. He had neutral righteousness. He had a test. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he passed the test, then Adam would earn perfect righteousness. Since Adam failed, he got minus R. Now, Jesus Christ was incarnate in the flesh, and through his life obedience, he earned. Notice this. This is the flaw in covenant theology, one of them. He earns perfect righteousness. And that qualified Him to go to the cross. So His suffering and passing those tests in covenant theology is all salvific. All of it is related to salvation, not just those three hours on the cross. And that is wrong. It is only between 12 noon and 3 p.m. that Christ... Uh, paid the penalty for our sins all the other sufferings are important but they are not related to salvation and then just after i got through dealing with that and uh uh, challenging some some of these people in relationship to that i was emailed a church constitutional change by one of my uh oldest friends who's out in southern california and some town called Torrance. We have somebody here from there, but we won't mention his name, though it leads the singing on Sunday morning. <laughs> and at his church there, he, uh, they are wanting to change the doctrinal statement on salvation, and they're putting in this same statement that Christ's life, not only that, that's only half of it, the worst part is they're wanting to make uh, regeneration precede faith. So it is just the gospel is under attack within the church, left and right today. And a lot of it relates to the fact that Christians, a lot of Christians tend to be self-righteous and they just have a hard time understanding how Christians can still sin. And that's at the root problem with uh, a lot of things. And so they want to bring in subtle forms of legalism, which is what lordship salvation is. But what we have here in Romans 10.4 is a clear statement that Christ ended the law. For righteousness, He fulfills all of the righteous demands of the law so that the law is no longer valid. Now, he's the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes because at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to the believer by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the, the believer, even though he's still a rotten sinner, still possesses a sin nature... He has the perfect righteousness of Christ so that God the Father, who is perfect righteousness, righteousness is the standard of his integrity, looks down and sees the perfect righteousness that we have from Christ and is satisfied. Therefore, the justice of God, which is the application of his standard, either cursing for those who are disobedient, blessing for those who have righteousness, The justice of God is now free to bless the believer, not because of who and what the believer is, but because he possesses the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. As a result of that, the Father's righteousness is satisfied. That's called the doctrine of propitiation. He's propitiated by the work of Christ on the cross. He's satisfied with the believer's righteousness, and therefore he uh, imputes to the believer eternal life. That all happens instantaneously, When we put our faith alone in Christ alone. So Romans 10.4 states the law is no longer applicable because Christ fulfilled it. Now let's look at another passage on this. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3 verse 15. Galatians chapter 3 verse 15. 2 Corinthians and then Galatians. Galatians is between 2 Corinthians and Ephesians. Just in case you've forgotten since we finished Galatians about a year ago, you might have uh, somehow slipped past your, your thinking. Galatians 3.15, Brethren, I speak to you, speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only man's covenant... And so he's talking about just in the realm of everyday human experience, even when man enters into a contract, he says, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, I worked on these notes a couple of weeks ago before any contemporary events. But here is a very interesting doctrinal point. Once you establish a principle of law... You don't go back later and change the rules just because the conclusions weren't quite what you thought they would be. And that's exactly what the Scripture is saying. Once you enter into a contract and you've established something, which is what the law was in Florida in case anybody's missed it, you don't come in and change the law just because you don't like the results, which is exactly what, we, what happened last night in the Supreme Court in Florida. We saw a prime example of judicial tyranny, and this is dangerous today. It's a prime example of, of doing just the opposite of what this passage says. I guess Apostle Paul just wasn't enlightened enough, modern 20th century, century Americans. Now, speak in terms of human relations, even though it's only a human covenant, when it is ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Notice, singular form of the noun. This is why we do exegesis, to look at nouns and verbs and parse them because every grammatical part is significant. And to his seed... He does not say and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed refers to Christ. So the promises are ultimately brought to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Verse 17, what I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later, that is 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. In other words, the Mosaic law doesn't change the any aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. It is a it, it it is something different. It doesn't nullify the promise. Verse eighteen for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise. In other words, if inheritance of salvation, if the Jews' relationship to the promises of God is now based on the law, then it would have invalidated the previous contract. Verse nineteen. Why the law then? It was added because of transgression, because of sin, in order to provide stability for the nation, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So right there we see the until indicates that it was temporary in nature. It was only given for a a purpose until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made, and the seed there in context is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the implication, therefore, is that the Mosaic Law was only a temporary covenant. Now, skip down to verse 23. But before faith came, that is, before the faith, that is, the revelation in Jesus Christ came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later revealed. That is, the doctrine which was to be revealed in Christ. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by means of faith. And the point there that Paul is making is that the law was like a pedagogue in the Greek family structure. In a family, in a Greek aristocratic family, they would hire a tutor, sort of a substitute dad, who would take care of the infant until he reached uh, adolescence. And he was virtually the child was virtually a slave to the pedagogue. The pedagogue ran everything in his life, told him when to get up, when to go to bed, what to eat. Um, everything was ordered and orchestrated by the pedagogue. But once the child entered adulthood, then he was no longer under the pedagogue. And that's the analogy that Paul is making: is that the the Old Testament believer was like the child under the pedagogue, and the Mosaic Law detailed every aspect of his life. But now, as an adult, because church-age believers are dwelt by the Holy Spirit, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they have a completed canon of Scripture, and they have all of the spiritual assets that Jesus Christ has bequeathed to us in the church age, we are adults. And therefore, we are not to live and act as children. We're not to have every aspect of our life dictated to by the law. There is freedom now to make decisions and to utilize the doctrine and to apply it in slightly different ways depending on the individual. Uh, There are still absolutes, but there are certain areas of freedom within those absolutes. Verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. So there again we see the purpose for the law was to lead people to Christ to realize the need for a savior. But now that faith has, come, now the faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What's the tutor? It's the Mosaic Law. We're no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the Mosaic Law. I don't know how much more clear it could be. Hebrews 7, 11 through 18 also reiterates the same point that the law is temporary and is, uh, has been uh, fulfilled and is no longer operative and in effect. Now, with the end of the law, we see the end of a dispensation. Now, let's go back and look at the dispensations as we've studied them so far. First of all, we have the broad period, which is the age of the Gentiles, when God worked through all the members of the human race. The first dispensation began with the Edenic covenant or the creation covenant, and is called the dispensation of human perfection. That ended with the fall God revised the covenant in the Adamic covenant and uh, that instituted the dispensation of conscience. Man failed to uh, rule his affairs. Wickedness and evil prevailed upon the earth. So God had to destroy the human race because of the infiltration of the fallen angels, the sons of God who uh, infiltrated the human race. And God reinstituted the covenant with Noah And that brought the age of civil government, which failed at the Tower of Babel. That was the next shift occurred with the Abrahamic Covenant, which began the age of Israel. With Abraham, God is no longer working specifically through the Jews. I mean, through the Gentiles. He is working only through the Jews. This is why we call it the age of Israel. The first age is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then with the uh, giving of the Mosaic law, we have the age of the law. And then the final age, which is an overlap transition dispensation, is the Messianic age, which ends with the cross. Now, let's look at the aspects of the Mosaic law. The central person is Moses. The name is derived from the fact that God is the one who gave the Mosaic Law to Moses, which contains 613 commandments, not merely 10. The responsibility involved two aspects. Israel was expected to obey the Mosaic Law in its entirety and to obey the revelation God gave through the prophets during the age of Israel. So there are two aspects of responsibility. One, obey the law. Two, obey continuing revelation given through the prophets. The third aspect is the test. The test was related to those two elements. To obey the law and then to accept Messiah as the prophet as prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 through 18 or 15 through 19. But Israel failed; they failed to keep the law, according to Romans 10:1 through 3, and they failed to keep the prophets and to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, 2 Chronicles 36:14 through 16. The result of that is that Israel was disciplined, according to Deuteronomy 28. And Leviticus 18, and they were removed from the land and dispersed throughout the nations. 2 Chronicles 36:14 14 through 16 states, "...furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers." Because he had compassion on his people, that's the grace of God in action, and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his word, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Now, notice, that comes at the end of Second Chronicles. In the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament, that's the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's how the Old Testament ends for the Jews a condemnation of them for rejecting his prophetic message. They failed to accept the Messiah. In terms of judgments, they were taken out of the land in 70 A.D., and they will not be restored to the land until the end of the tribulation, although there will be a a tribulation-related return to the land. They will not return as a whole, as a nation, until they are regenerated at the end of the tribulation. We see that during this time, grace was operative in two ways. First of all, God had provided the sacrificial system for the sinner and that the Messiah did eventually come to Israel to, uh, despite their sinfulness. The angelic conflict issue in all of this is demonstrated through the rise of anti-Semitism because uh, Satan knew that God was working through, the, uh, through Israel he was going to, his plan, as it will be in the tribulation, is to remove Israel so God can fulfill his promises. So there's the rise of anti-Semitism, the satanic assault of idolatry, which is a tantamount to demonism, and the use of foreign powers to try to remove Israel from the land that God had promised to them. Now, in conclusion, this is where we are. The biblical dispensations. We have the first age, which is the age of the Gentiles. Marked by three dispensations. The first is that of perfect environment. I need to know if you can read this, because I'm just, this is an experimental chart. We have the covenant creation in Genesis 1 28 30 and Hosea 6 7. There's a responsibility to fulfill the covenant, Genesis 1 26 28, and Genesis 2 16 17. Then there is failure. They ate the fruit, Genesis 3, 1 through 6, which brought divine judgment of spiritual death, Genesis 3, 7 through 19. The second age is conscience, governed by the Adamic covenant, Genesis 3:14 to 19, animal sacrifice, evil and wickedness uh, developed and was unchecked. And so God had to judge the human race and brought the flood. That should be divine. Judgment should be the flood. Then we have human government. Uh, The third dispensation governed by the Noahic covenant. Man was to fill the earth. Instead, he stayed in one place and built the Tower of Babel. God punished them through the confusion of languages. Then we have the introduction of the age of Israel, which began with the first age of patriarchs and the Abrahamic covenant. Israel was expected to stay a distinct people, Rather, they assimilated to the Canaanites around them, so God had to put them in bondage down in Egypt to protect them. Then he brought them out of bondage, gave them the Mosaic law, governed by the Mosaic covenant. They were to obey the law. They disobeyed the law, and the result was scattered among the nations. So we have covered that much, and we have three major dispensations to go plus the tribulation. So we will cover that probably in the next month with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have uh, knowledge that the outworking of human history is the outworking of your plan and that everything in the Old Testament looked forward to your provision of salvation in Jesus Christ and that by faith alone in Christ alone we could have eternal salvation. Father, we thank you that uh, today we look back to that completed work and we have all of the assets that you have given us. We have the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills us and completed revelation, and on that basis we can live in true freedom despite any external slavery there might be, for freedom of the soul is the highest and greatest of all kinds of freedom. Now, Father, we thank you for what we have studied. We know that Jesus said that we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free but only if it becomes epinosis knowledge in our soul. So we pray that we might assimilate this truth into our thinking, revolutionize our thinking and our lives, that we might advance to spiritual maturity for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.